Hello everyone and welcome. This is the BLS Report. The BLS Report is a series of podcasts on issues of interest to members of the Business Law Section of the Law Council of Australia. We're delighted to present this series which honours the legacy of our dear friend and mentor, the late Professor Bob Baxt AO. My name is Pamela Hanrahan from the UNSW Business School. I'm a member of the executive of the BLS and a corporations and financial services lawyer, member of the Corporations Committee here in Sydney. Um, today's discussion is about talk, corporate tax and in particular the tax rules that apply to multinationals. So as a corporate lawyer, I'm very pleased to be able to welcome uh, two very eminent tax professors. I'm not sure what the collective noun for professors is. I'll have to look it up. Um, but I have with me today Professor Miranda Stewart, who is head of the tax group at the Melbourne Law School and a fellow at the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute at the Crawford School of Public Policy at ANU. And I hope she won't mind me saying a former colleague of mine at the old Arthur Robinson and Hedewicks in Melbourne, um, and we also have with us Professor Michael Durkis from the University of Sydney. Michael's a tax professor at the University of Sydney and a director of the Ross Parsons uh, Centre at the University of Sydney. Welcome to you both and thank you very much for making this time available to us today. I said we're going to talk about corporate tax today and in particular corporate tax for multinationals. What we're going to focus on is a project that I first heard about a decade or more ago in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. It's known as BEPS. Now, my vague recollection in about 2009 was something about a double Irish with a Dutch sandwich, which sounded like a good thing to have in a restaurant, but it's actually about multinational enterprises that exploit gaps and mismatches between different countries' tax systems. Um, so, Michael, can I start with you? Could you just tell us what BEPS stands for? and what the problem is that the relevant global institutions are trying to solve? Well, BEPS essentially is just the initials for um, base erosion and profit shifting. So um, base erosion generally occurs where you have an in interaction of different tax rules that lead to double non-taxation or uh, quite low rates of taxation. And the profit shifting side relates to arrangements which achieve no or low ju jurisdiction taxation by shifting profits away from jurisdictions where the activity creating those profits take place. And that's usually done by practices that artificially segregate taxable income from the activity that generates it. And during the global financial crisis, um, when governments were looking for in 2009 onwards for certain forms of additional revenue, um, they began to focus on something that had existed for many years, but they hadn't ceased to tackle or started to tackle. And it was the outrage of various uh, people, particularly in the UK, where uh, they started finding out that there were major companies that were operating in their jurisdiction that weren't paying any local tax. And it, they also came to the point that there was actual people power resistance. So one of the coffee outlets, Starbucks, people started in protest going into Starbucks, filling the place up 
waiting till the police arrived to empty them and therefore stopping any trade. And then a new group of people would go in and do exactly the same thing after that first group were cleared out. And there's all concerns about the fact that these large multinational corporations were seeming to pay no tax, yet they were all being subject to major cuts in welfare and other services. Yeah, so it was really the issue about the pressure that the revenue was put under in those jurisdictions after the crisis, wasn't it? And um, so people didn't really understand why if they went into a retail outlet in London um, and bought a cup of coffee from, you know, an English business with English staff in it, uh, presumably generating profits, but the company wasn't paying any tax on those profits in the UK because of arrangements that have been put in place around to move the profitability into a lower tax jurisdiction. Is that sort of the nub of it? That's the nub of it. That's what essentially was happening, that through um, copyright agreements and use of intellectual property, they were able to charge amounts that would absorb all the profits that were generated within the UK, um, within Australia, in a number of developed economies. Miranda, can I move on to you? Um, we often talk about this first phase of the BEPS project, which began, as we say, back in 2008. And it's said to have run through to about the middle of the last decade, so 2015. Can you tell us what was involved with that first phase and what it achieved? Yes, so well, it created a, an acronym, BEPS, which had never been an international tax concept previously. So as you say, after the global financial crisis, the governments were looking for revenue uh, and at the same time there was increasing concern about multinational enterprises uh, perhaps not paying what was thought of as their fair share of tax. Uh, and uh, the, the OECD initiated a project which had 15 actions, um, each of which were intended to address different aspects of this issue of base erosion and profit shifting. Uh, some of them were administrative, uh, for example, uh, the idea that governments, that businesses should be required to report their profits on a country-by-country -country basis uh, to different countries so that those governments could then share information. Some of it was um, substantive, what we would think of as substantive international tax rules. For example, uh, one of the actions meant that countries agreed to uh, close up some loopholes uh, in the international tax regime, for example, for hybrid instruments, hybrid debt equity instruments, for example, or situations where, where taxpayers were double dipping, uh, getting a deduction in two countries or an exemption in two countries for the same transaction. So some of it was that sort of anti-abuse. Uh, and some of it was about business presence. So that, that, uh, that there was a series of very detailed technical reports, lots of consultation with business, and, and actually substantial treaty amendment through a rather innovative uh, multilateral process uh, and amendment of many domestic country laws. Um, unfortunately, it just didn't resolve all the fundamental issues. Still, it must have been a very significant step forward to achieve that kind of multilateral cooperation resulting in domestic 
law reform. I know in corporations and securities, that's incredibly difficult to achieve. How many different jurisdictions had to come to the table even to get to that point? So initially, of course, the OECD, you know, a rich country organisation, I suppose, historically, I think probably about 36 member states. It is expanding its membership, I've noticed, especially in Latin and South America in recent years. But uh, gradually, as this base erosion, as this BEPS project proceeded, more and more countries, in a sense, came to the table, partly because the OECD wanted to extend its influence, especially the tax administrative aspects, but partly because countries, uh, especially many developing countries, felt that their interests were not being represented and that they were also negatively affected. So I guess uh, that led to uh, a much broader network um, which we're now seeing play out in the current round. I think we have, um, Michael could confirm, I think it's about 130 countries now engaged in negotiations through the OECD. It was almost a perfect storm. So you essentially also had the G7 and the G20 driving the project along. So for the first time, not it was not only just the OECD going out on its own and sort of trying to get agreement between its members. You had the political will being exercised by countries that were keen to get additional revenue. It's interesting, Michael, that you mentioned the G20 because my recollection is that significant steps were taken when Australia had the presidency of the G20 and some of this work, in fact, came out of Brisbane from memory, didn't it? Yes, Australia had had the presidency for a year. um, Certainly the the most tangible thing came out of it was, in fact, a new treaty between Germany and Australia, which was sort of based upon the principles that were going to be finally recommended when the reports were released in 2015. So there was, it certainly illustrated a, a sort of a, in one sense, a perfect storm for reform only because you suddenly had not only the administrators and the international organisations aligned, you also had a larger number of governments seeing this as a major issue and it needed fixing. And what's interesting is that it was bipartisan. So, you know, we had an election uh, just halfway through or whenever it was, 2012, 2013, and a change of government, of course, uh, but the new treasurer with the new government, it was Joe Hockey at the time, was going to the G20 meetings in Brisbane, I remember, and, and you know, took a, took a pretty active lead on this BEPS project. I have fond memories of the G20 in Brisbane and indeed any multilateral event where we could actually meet in person seems like a faint memory now. Um, so I think, Miranda, you said that that first phase had 15 or so action items and that some progress was made. But there's still work to be done, that's right, isn't there? And so now people have started to talk about BEPS 2.0. Could you tell us about that? Yes, that's right. So I guess the first phase, you know, what the OECD has historically been very good at is helping to alleviate double taxation, uh, remove barriers to trade and investment, remove excessive tax barriers. Um, And what BEPS required the OECD and member states to do was actually to close loopholes and to start to potentially expand the ability for countries to tax. So you can imagine that was controversial. Uh, The first action item was uh, about the digital economy uh, and there was a big report written um, but no decision made in in BEPS 1.0 because nobody quite knew what to do. And so BEPS 2.0 is, uh, in a sense, uh, trying to take that that first action item about how to tax the global digital economy, whatever we might think that means, 
in this new world. Uh, and so it has two pillars uh, which are an attempt to to bring that, that tax to what you might think of as global intangible sort of super profits in some sense. Thank you. So you are listening to the BLS report. I am Pamela Hanrahan and we are talking with Professor Miranda Stewart and Professor Michael Durkis about BEPS 2.0 and the challenges of taxing the digital economy. So, Michael, is this really just a problem about US big tech? Um, I've heard them sometimes referred to as fangs, which seems a better word than robber barons, which is what we use in our house, but that stands for Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix and Google. They're all the big sort of digital players from the US. Is this just a US problem? Is it confined to big tech or is it a bigger issue? It's a much bigger issue because not only do you have um, the actual tech players, you've also got people that have uh, systems of sale. So um, the Amazons, the Starbucks, um, a range of other major multinationals and mainly through a network of various intellectual property agreements are able to either shift money to um, pay for the use of their intellectual property. And in the case of some of the retailers who have their next day delivery, exploit um, gaps in the treaties, which allowed them to create huge warehouses in countries. But those warehouses were not considered to be sufficient presence to give rise to a branch or a PE such that some taxation could be levied. So I could go onto a website here in Sydney and order goods that are shipped to me the next day from a warehouse in Western Sydney, but that transaction is actually not pl- taking place in Australia for tax purposes. Is that right? That's right, because on when you go online, what you do is you usually enter into a contract, and that contract is a sales contract that is concluded in another jurisdiction. So, therefore, there is no source of money coming from that contract. Now, the only way um, you can establish that that warehouse in wherever it be in the Geelong or whatever else, is a place of earning income is if it actually does something. But if it merely just stores the equipment and sends it out, then traditionally under our treaties, that wasn't sufficient to create a place of earning. You see similar sorts of things in when you look at, say, phone contracts. So when you enter into a phone contract, um, what you'll do is you'll purchase the physical item from a, a store being the, the hardware but you will also enter into a secondary software contract. And that contract, which is for the software that runs the phone, the intellectual property, that is all um, charged. That contract is entered into, you enter into it online, and therefore that contract is physically entered into in Singapore. So you divide a product like a phone up into two parts, the hardware and the software. Software carries the higher cost value, and the greater profitability, that profitability is that shifted to Singapore and the phone is just plastic and metal and it's sold in Australia uh, for very little profit. The implications of that for fintech must be extraordinary. I'm, as you know, I'm pretty interested in financial services regulation and we are seeing enormous um, strides forward in fintech um, and there are a number of fintech players, neobanks they're often referred to, as that are starting to come into Australia, and we expect that that will they will garner significant market share, um, particularly as people have become more comfortable about doing transactions of all kinds online during COVID. So that's that's interesting to me. I hadn't realised 
I mean, I, I sort of understand the idea that if I watch a movie that's, you know, sitting on a computer in a different country, maybe that transaction's not play, taking place in Australia, but it sounds like it's much wider than that. And, and it's all based upon our whole, whole historic background to what we consider we could tax and we can't tax. And so you either tax residents on their worldwide income or you tax people on transactions they conduct within your jurisdiction. But we used to tax goods, which used to be the dominant item of trade through direct taxes, through customs duties and the like going through ports. Now, if you no longer have to have a physical point of entry, it can be multiple point of entries through anyone's individual computer. It gets very difficult to say that how how you tax that amount of sales income. And is this any different to days gone your where a catalogue would arrive and you could order off a catalogue and it would be shipped into Australia? There is really no fundamental difference. The contracts were always offshore. They're selling only a product into Australia. They're not keeping any jurisdictional claim here. So, therefore, there's nothing to tax other than at the entry point, and that is often very difficult when you're dealing with pure transactions of buying media content or music or software. Yeah, and if I bought instructions for a 3D printer and then printed my goods myself in my own house, I imagine that would create similar problems. Miranda, what Michael's been talking about sounds like a really typical nut to crack, which is why Kevin Pose always used to say to me, that's why tax lawyers make so much money. Um, it sounds like a difficult problem. How, how does BEPS 2.0 through its Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 try and address those issues? This BEPS 2.0 is about the corporate tax. So what what we historically have is a, is a tax on corporate profit, of course, and we usually have separate entity recognition around the world and that's that's what contributes to this ability for for M&Es to do BEPS right they can they can manage within the corporate group globally they have control over contracting over transactions over location of intellectual property and so on as Michael has explained the other side of it uh, which is more easily solved actually is the application of consumption taxes so it's not it's not straightforward but so our GST for example uh, Australia just recently introduced in 2017 and 18 what we called the Netflix tax, uh, which was the ability of the Australian government to collect uh, GST on digital downloads from offshore platforms or offshore suppliers. So the, the BEPS issue is about uh, corporate profit. Uh, and the, the pillar one is, is this question exactly that Michael was explaining about nexus. How do we identify which country uh, has the entitlement to tax some of the profit from, from a large m and selling into uh, digitally in some way selling into that country, the location of the consumers, the location of the Facebook users or the, the signed up uh, users of Instagram or whatever. And then how do we attribute profit? How much profit should go with that? BEPS Pillar 2 uh, does something a bit different. It's about the, the residence country, if you like, the country where the multinational is based. Uh, and it's a kind of minimum tax. So it, it would allocate power to that country internationally in the system to if, 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 a, if a transaction was taxed below a certain amount at a zero rate or a very low rate somewhere around the world, then a minimum tax, uh, kind of a base eroding tax, if you like, would kick in. So we have two pieces and both pieces are currently being very closely negotiated in secret at the OECD. 
So that second one, were you talking about the um, domicile of the multinational enterprise? Is that something that's easily manipulated? Do people just say, my enormous business is located in this tax haven? Or how, how do we decide whether it's a company that's resident here or elsewhere? Well, a residence is able to be manipulated. Um, and in fact, in the US, uh, we've seen before the President Trump tax reform, so the US did a, a big tax reform that was enacted in December 2017, uh, which actually did address some of these issues for US multinationals. Before that, we were seeing quite a lot of what are called corporate inversions, where US multinationals, for example, some of the big pharmaceuticals companies, kind of reverse their holding structures so as to uh, reproduce residence in a foreign jurisdiction, probably a low-tax country, instead of in the US. So that's certainly possible. But for these large global corporates, uh, it's not that easy, I think, for them to move the residence of their, their parent entities. They're, li they're usually listed, you know, Google, Alphabet. The FANGs are, are US corporates. Uh, the US would be pretty cross, I think, if they left the US. <laughs> and it's not that easy in terms of their market. So residence is maybe a little less easy to manipulate than, than this idea of where they do business. It's interesting for corporate lawyers, of course, while you were talking about that, I was thinking about James Hardy moving its home country many years ago, which has resulted in a series of really interesting uh, corporate law cases. Yeah, precisely. I mean, corporates do that for, for corporate liability reasons or other reasons, and they also do it for tax when, you know, when the cost or the barrier is big enough, they'll, they'll find, find a way. It's interesting, Miranda, that you mentioned those US tax reforms. Um, I know that at the beginning of this year, which seems like dog years ago with this COVID, but back in January, um, I was aware there was a dispute between the US and France over a digital services tax that the French had um, introduced or were proposing to introduce. It came to my attention, of course, because the US was threatening to put a 100% tariff on French champagne, which seemed like a very, very severe response to me. But um, can you tell us maybe a little bit about that that um, dispute between the Americans and the French? Is, does that touch on these issues? Yes. So France had uh, has actually gone ahead and enacted this digital services tax, um, but I think is perhaps holding fire, uh, is not collecting it at the moment uh, because of these OECD negotiations. Uh, and it's not the only country. So the European Commission, the European Union, had uh, recommended that, that every European country, you know, have a, a digital services tax, essentially a levy on turnover applicable only to very large digital enterprises. So as you can imagine, that would essentially mean that the very large US fangs uh, would potentially be subject to the DST. And it was a, a fraction of the revenue or turnover that they would derive in that country from users or sales in that country or advertising sold in that country. Um, so not a profit tax at all, unlike the corporate income tax, but acting as a kind of proxy for, for profit. The US sees it as a uh, as a, a discriminatory trade barrier and uh, there was a rather public stoush between uh, US Secretary Mnuchin uh, and um, the French Prime Minister, I think, and even uh, between Macron and Trump earlier this year. We're not quite sure what's going to happen with that, but it's a, it's a bargaining lever in the current negotiation. 
So the French essentially said to a company like Amazon, we'll just tote up how many sales you have in France and put a tax on them and collect that from you in France. As simple as that? That's right. It was sort of, I think the French proposal was 3%. Um, Michael may remember 3% of gross revenue over certain thresholds. Uh, in fact, India was a first mover. They initiated what they called um, digital services, a sort of digital levy, um, advertising levy, I think they called it, uh, at 6% of revenues on Google, and they've been collecting it quite successfully for the last few years. So a number of countries are looking at it now instead of relying on the corporate income tax. Presumably, Michael, as the share of global trade moves from trade in physical goods to digital trade, this must be an incredibly significant issue for the whole rest of this century. I think it will remain so, um, partially because of the value of um, a particular intellectual property. So if you can dispose of the rights to use your intellectual property out of the US, then you can place the ownership of that intellectual property in a very low-taxing jurisdiction or a no-taxing jurisdiction, then obviously that jurisdiction can charge everywhere outside the US, which uses its um, intellectual property, uh, royalties. And if you choose the right country to tailor your royalties through, like the Netherlands, that don't charge any withholding taxes on royalties on the way out of the EU, then you're able to move large sums of, well, one charge, what is arguably under the current valuation rules, a an appropriate price for the use of that intellectual property. But effectively, you're shifting profit from the places where who are the jurisdictions where companies are located paying that royalty um, to places like the um, Netherlands Antilles or um, Bermuda. And not that the money sits there for very long, it's usually then circled back as loans back into the, the global enterprise. And it may, in fact, commission its own development of intellectual property within the US, which, because they're the ones who are paying for it, it remains the copyright, their their intellectual property going forward, and it perpetuates the cycle. Thank you. The voice you can hear at the moment is Michael Durkis, Professor of Tax at the University of Sydney, and we also have with us Professor Miranda Stewart uh, from the University of Melbourne, and we're discussing BEPS and the um, new changes or proposed changes for taxing the digital economy. I wonder if I could bring you both back just to the Australian implications of these changes. Are we a significant player in this space? Is it affecting tax administration in Australia? Maybe starting with you, Michael? There's been major changes to tax administration in Australia as a result of this. We've entered into a uh, multilateral agreement um, on assistance in tax matters which is a purely administrative multilateral agreement between about 137 tax authorities across the world in various jurisdictions, and that has fairly extensive powers for exchange of information. It also provides for debt collection in some limited cases um, and also service of documents. So you combine those with our our treaty changes, um, disclosure rules uh, that have arisen directly out of the the BEPS measures, um, country by country reporting and the like. And what we've seen in our domestic law is provision after provision being inserted to facilitate 
these exchanges to occur. So it is a, a huge area of intellectual change. We don't realise how how vast the um, exchange arrangements currently operate. And quite a number of uh, what were formerly called tax havens, but because we have agreements with them now, they're referred to as low taxing jurisdictions, will exchange information uh, on request from Australian revenue authorities. Yeah, when you think about the extraordinary stimulus and support measures that governments all around the world have put in place um, to support the economy through and hopefully after the pandemic, that um, we really need a robust tax base, don't we? And we need to solve these problems. Miranda, what do you see as the prospects for the next decade in this area? Well, I love a 10-year prediction, uh, especially after COVID-19, Pamela. Um, uh, so, look... Uh, Michael's already explained the administrative implications, and I think those are only going to continue. So probably the biggest thing that's come out of BEPS in terms of tax management and taxpayers, the, the relationship between governments and taxpayers in Australia and globally has been administrative. And we're going to see this continual tightening, data sharing and increased capacity to collect we're also going to see GSTs and VATs extended to these global digital transactions. So where that leaves us uncertain is what's going to happen with the corporate income tax globally. Uh, it, there's a lot of debate about whether there'll be any deal done for BEPS 2.0, this, this sort of. But in some ways, BEPS 2.0 is still rather narrowly focused. Uh, it's still really just about you know, these use of digital platforms or methods uh, to, to sell into countries. Probably we'll see some solution at the margins there. Uh, it leaves the bigger question about um, how we should allocate profits for, for large multinational corporates around the world and whether, you know, recognising separate entity status of companies and looking at arms length dealing is the way to go. And especially for a country like Australia that does still so much resource exporting. BEPS 2.0 doesn't really deal properly with how we should how we should tax our big big corporate multinationals. Uh, so I think these debates are going to going to continue. What I'd like to see though is avoiding some sort of trade war, but it's really in my view going to turn on on the US election to, to sort of see what happens next in this space. And what we can confidently predict about the US election is zero. Exactly. Exactly. It's really hard to know what, what's going to happen. Well, you know, what either this or the next US president, uh, what steps they would take in this arena. Indeed, indeed. We've been talking with Professor Miranda Stewart from the University of Melbourne and Professor Michael Durkis from the University of Sydney about um, digital uh, taxing the digital economy and BEPS, in particular BEPS 2.0. Thank you both so much for your time. It's um, of great benefit to all of the members of the Business Law section of the Law Council of Australia to have your expertise on this topic, which I suspect is going to remain um, very live for the next little while at least. So thank you again, both of you, for your time.